Introduction by Karen Durr I first met Judy at the Conference on Holocaust Education, which she attended as the founder of the website Women and the Holocaust, a cyberspace of their own. I'm using her first name here with affection because I've come to know her well, academically and personally. She established her website in 2001, before it became prevalent in the field of Holocaust studies to consider women's experiences specifically. It was not long before this that the distinguished professor of Holocaust studies, Carol Rittner, had famously asked her colleague John Roth, after reading his 1989 book on the Holocaust, Where are the women? Rittner then set to the task of filling this gap with different voices, women and the Holocaust, a seminal volume containing the work of pioneering scholars of women's Holocaust experiences, co-edited with Roth and published in 1993. Judy's daughter, Michelle, thoughtfully offered her mother a copy of the book and it had a profound impact on Judy. At the time that she began learning about Holocaust scholarship in the 1990s, there was a belief among many researchers and survivors that Jewish suffering during the German Judeocide should not be differentiated by gender or age, so as not to lose sight of the horrors perpetrated against all Jews. Therefore, this new cognizance of women's experiences in the Holocaust frequently met with resistance. Yet, as Judy explains in her memoir, the aim of this scholarship was not to efface men's suffering, but to highlight that women were often treated differently on account of their gender and their status in family life and in society as a whole. With the help of her son Jonathan, Judy began using the internet in the 1990s, daring to venture into the world of technology as a senior. Echoing Rittner, Judy asked the editor of the Holocaust website Remember.org, and where are the women on your website? She then set out to become a digital collector of female voices, as well as of writings based on research about women's specific experiences in the Holocaust. Judy describes her path to creating her website with passion. She felt compelled to bring both academia and personal reflections to a much wider audience. And over the years, many educators and students have indeed found guidance and source material through her site. The regularly updated bibliographies are inclusive in that texts by or about women are marked with an asterisk and do not form a separate category. Judy's website is a significant example of her persistent efforts to help chart a new course in studying and teaching the Holocaust. For years, Judy was busy giving talks at conferences and networking with scholars and survivors, 
inviting them to contribute to her site and becoming a connector and facilitator who brought researchers together and thus widened the scope of Holocaust education. She even traveled as far as Israel to attend presentations at the biennial conference on women and the Holocaust and to engage in discussions with scholars and survivors. I saw her there and at many such places. Judy came to meet me at the 2017 Congress of Humanities and Social Sciences at then Ryerson University, now Toronto Metropolitan University, carrying a copy of the latest book by Dr. Myrna Goldenberg, which the author had intended for me. Even though Judy was using a walker, she did not mind traveling the distance as a male woman. It pleased her that she could contribute to the sharing of research, even if it was by personally delivering a new book on women in the Holocaust. She was still tireless, even though in the previous few years she had been in ill health and weighed down by the mental and physical burden of attending to her husband, who has since passed away. Although Judy Cohen had been collecting women's Holocaust stories for decades, one account was missing, her own. She had published a few of her memories over the years on her website. In 1999, Fräulein, about the moment of liberation, followed by her moving piece, a most memorable Colnidre, in the same year. In 2004, her article, March 19th, 1944, A Fateful Day for Hungarian Jews, was published in the Canadian Jewish News. All three pivotal memories are included under the section Fragments on her site. Now, after years of speaking, facilitating, and sharing her own and others' testimonies, she has decided to publish her complete story. Judy's family lived in Debrecen, Hungary's second largest city after Budapest, situated in the northeast of the country. As the tide of war changed in 1944-45, it briefly became the capital of Hungary. While overtly anti-Semitic laws began to affect Jews in Germany when Hitler came to power in 1933, Hungary had been the first country to curtail the civil rights of Jews by introducing a 6% student quota, numerous clauses, in higher education in 1920. This law introduced the idea of Jews as a separate nationality from the rest of the population, although the concept of a Jewish nationality had not existed in Hungarian law. The numerous clauses law had a deleterious effect on many Jewish families whose members were expelled from universities, including the University of Debrecen the oldest continuously operating institution of higher education in the country. An amendment to the law, which eliminated differentiation by nationality or religion, was introduced in 1928 because of international pressure. 
but the second anti-Jewish law passed by the Hungarian parliament under Miklos Horthy in 1939 reintroduced the legal distinction between Jews and Hungarian citizens, this time defining Jews as a distinct race, a definition that was akin to the 1935 Nazi race laws of Nuremberg. Jews' access to universities and professions such as law, government administration, and journalism, as well as some commercial and industrial enterprises, was limited. More anti-Jewish edicts followed. Judy's large family felt the effects of Hungary's anti-Jewish measures that were introduced in the late 1930s. Two of Judy's siblings, Clary and Lassie, were not allowed to attend a state university and had to go to work instead. Young Judy was forbidden from attending a regular high school. Although widespread public and official anti-Semitism continued to affect Hungary's Jews, often in the form of aggressive demonstrations or individual attacks, many still believed that the owner's situation would not last. They had every reason to think that they were an integral part of their country, citizens first and Jews second. Hungary was their homeland, to which they were bound linguistically and culturally while contributing to the country's economy and raising their children as Hungarian citizens. However, the persecution of Hungary's Jews continued and intensified. In November 1940, just over a year after the onset of World War II, Hungary became an ideological and military ally of Nazi Germany. That year, Judy's father, Sandor Weissenberg, was forced to close down his business, directly impacted by new anti-Jewish regulations. Like so many other Jewish fathers at that time, he lost his ability to provide for his family, and with this his pride. But the biggest change for Judy and her family happened four years later. She writes, Our lives immediately and profoundly changed on March 19, 1944, when the Nazis became aware that Hungary wanted to withdraw from the Axis alliance and that Miklos Horthy was making overtures to the Allies, the German army marched into Hungary and occupied it. With SS officer Adolf Eichmann in charge of ghettoizing and deporting the Jews. Matters proceeded with lightning speed. My memories of that time are of constantly worried faces and whispered discussions among the adults around us. The children absorbed their grave concerns by osmosis, and our childhoods were not allowed to blossom as we lived with uncertainty from day to day. End of Judy's words. From April 1944 on, Hungarian Jews were required to wear a yellow Star of David on their clothes in public, as had been decreed in an edict dated March 31st. 
Germany had started this public identification of Jews with the Judenstern, the Jewish star. And when they invaded Poland in 1939, they demanded that countries under their control identify Jews in this way. The yellow stars have become a well-known symbol of the Holocaust. But what did they mean for the people who had to wear them? Judy applies contemporary terminology to her experience when she says that the Jews became a visible minority. She relates how she would cover up the badge with books that she had held in front of her in what she calls my little act of resistance. Soon after this edict, Hungarian Jews were forced to live in overcrowded ghettos before being sent to death camps, mainly Auschwitz-Birkenau. Judy writes about the ghetto not only in terms of the hopelessness there, but also about herself as part of a community, albeit a suffering one, a theme that emerges throughout her memoir. She remembers Thursday, June 29, 1944, the day of the dreaded deportation and the Hungarian soldiers pushing and shoving people into cattle cars. The Weisenberg family was among the 430,000 Hungarian Jews who were taken away for what was euphemistically called resettlement, umsiedlung, or simply transport. Few thought they would be killed. The Germans, with the collaboration and support of the Hungarians, sent 147 trains daily, each carrying 3,000 Hungarian Jews to Auschwitz-Birkenau from mid-May to mid-July of 1944. Most were killed immediately. Under international pressure, the Hungarian government halted deportations on July 6, 1944. But in spite of these orders, additional trains of victims continued to be sent to Auschwitz. The Germans had even calculated the cost and profit of these trains and their cargo, weighing the cost of the transports against the profit they would get from the Jews' confiscated property. Human beings and goods became equal and mere statistics. Judy gives us an indication of the horrid conditions on the train, a glimpse into a world that was unimaginable, one that she says is impossible to adequately describe. Yet, Judy does vividly describe images from Birkenau and other hellholes created by the Germans, where she was the recipient of and witness to beastly treatment and utter viciousness. Upon arrival at the death camp, there was the selection, or selection, an infamous and horrible fact of this place. Officials waved the dumbfounded people either to the left or right. Little did the victims know that one of those directions meant immediate death by gassing. Judy and her three older sisters were lucky, initially at least, to be on the path to survival together. Her writing underlines the importance of a support group, sistering 
as she calls it, even with non-family members, as was the case later. Suffering became communal, a significant factor that has been cited in other accounts by women who talk about their survival of the Nazi death camps. The title of Judy's memoir, A Cry in Unison, represents this idea of shared agony with a circle of women in captivity. Her moving account of 1999, a most memorable Col Nitre, represented as the prologue in her memoir, is perhaps the best illustration. She recounts how hundreds of Jewish women in Birkenau burst out in a cry, in unison, as one woman began to recite the Kol Nidra prayer on the most solemn of Jewish holidays, Yom Kippur. As Judy says, this heart-rending sound has stayed with her all her life. At the time, this gathering strengthened both the individual and the group. Her pain was at one with the pain of the others and they could all take comfort in knowing that nobody was alone. Italian Auschwitz survivor Primo Levi famously wrote about how chances of survival in the death camps were better if one understood what was being said in that dangerous environment. Judy had learned German early on at the Jewish parochial school at Debrechen and at home and it likely helped her deal with critical situation while in German captivity. However, the German spoken in the death camps was not what inmates had learned at school or from their parents, guardians, or nannies. The language used in the German concentration camps and in National Socialist Germany in general, since known as Nazi German or Nazi Deutsch, is a complex and multifaceted construct that fills an entire book that I co-authored with Robert Michael called An English Lexicon of the Language of the Third Reich. Throughout this expensive work of 6,500 entries, the Nazis' preoccupation with the Jews, their persecution and eventual annihilation is mirrored in language. There's hardly a page without a reference to the murder of Jews. It begins with A as the abbreviation of Arbeitsjuden, Jews capable of work, to be worked to death, and ends with Cyclone B, the deadly cyanide gas that was used to asphyxiate Jewish men, women, and children. Many survivors like Judy remember these and other German terms. She recalls that loud screaming by the lager leaders of Achtung, Achtung always sent shivers down their spines and inevitably meant selection, the most gut-wrenching times, worse even than hunger, she says. She also recalls the Zellappell, roll call, part of daily life at Auschwitz-Birkenau, regardless of weather and conducted with such abuse that it became a torture in itself. These and other German words have remained in Judy's consciousness and can't adequately be translated because the translations could never carry the word's true meaning or reflect her experience. 
The Holocaust universe was the context for this language, and there was no other. Many survivors are haunted by the memory of the German expertise that Nazis used against incarcerated Jews, reducing the victims to objects. In fact, the Jews in the Nazi camps were often referred to as pieces, Stücke, along with, as Judy mentions, verfluchte Juden, accursed Jews, or dreckige Juden, dirty Jews. Abusive speech compounded the agony further for those already dying or trying to survive in abject conditions. To the killers, the word Jude, Jew, itself had become a degrading form of address, starting in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Instead of using Mr. when addressing Jewish men in German society, Nazi officials would use Jew. In survivors' accounts, we often find German invectives, often untranslated, because only in the original language could they carry their devastating force and import. Judy's memoir is no exception, and it contains a number of German words that have stayed with her all her life, unchanged. One German word that Judy remembers is particularly revealing. Judy was on what was called later a death march, called so because for so many it meant death from exhaustion, hunger, illness, or by physical violence or shooting. In retrospect, we know these marches were, for those who lived, the way to liberation. But at the time, there seemed to be no end inside but oblivion. For Judy, the hunger was unbearable, relentless, she says. But on the morning of Saturday, May 5th, 1945, Judy awoke to hear the entire group of women she was with being addressed as Fräulein, ladies. She did not need a keen ear to distinguish the linguistic and tonal nuance of this word. After all the curses and ill-treatment, this German official had changed his tune, literally overnight. The reason was that he knew of the Allies' imminent arrival, signaling the end of the war. It was a beautiful sunny day, Judy remembers poignantly, animating for the reader these long days of hardship and fear of death. And there was no irony this time. Eventually, Judy returned to Hungary, a trip that she had anticipated with apprehension. Was this to be the termination of her dark journey? It may seem to outsiders that survival itself was the happy ending after the Holocaust. But for Judy and many others, arriving in their homeland meant unexpected situations and problems. There was surprise and hostility from neighbors when they saw that Jews had survived. They feared having to return the Jewish belongings they had unlawfully seized, and they dreaded reprisals. All mixed in with the still-present baseline antisemitism. In other European countries, Jewish survivors faced persecution, attacks, murders, and actual pogroms. The situation in Hungary was a bit less severe than in Poland, 
where the number of Jewish victims after the Holocaust is estimated at 2,000. But still, approximately 100 Jews were murdered upon their return to Hungary. After Judy arrived back in Debrecen in August 1945, she desperately wanted to know who from her family had survived and who had perished. From her immediate family, she met only her brother Lassie. Judy went back to school, which was a good distraction from wrestling with my agonizing memories and traumatic experiences, she writes. Like other Holocaust survivors, she had difficulty picking up the pieces of a shattered life in a place that did not feel like home any longer. In order to somehow continue, the trauma and the memories were repressed, but they were not forgotten. Judy and her brother soon learned that their sister Evie had survived as well, but did not want to return to Hungary. And so Judy reluctantly left school and the three surviving siblings reunited in the Bergen-Belsen DP camp in Germany. Most importantly, they pondered how to move on, wanting to find a direction and a goal to pursue. Judy forged ahead with courage and determination and eventually started life in a new country, Canada and in a different language. On June 11, 1948, she arrived in Halifax at Pier 21, the entry point that became famous because so many new immigrants and refugees landed there. What did this new country have to offer her and other survivors? For one, it was a land at peace, and living here meant living in safety without dreading the anticipated knock on the door, the hostility of the immediate environment, or sudden laws that would take away their freedom. For refugees, these were important and essential factors. Yes, there were problems here too, and as Judy writes, life wasn't always smooth sailing. Some difficulties were compounded by the fact that she had had a grim past and an upbringing in another country and at a different time. With candor, she recounts downfalls and disappointments as she adjusted to life in Canada. Judy was eager to become a member of the Canadian workforce, and after working in the garment industry, she eventually took a business course and found jobs in bookkeeping and real estate. She married a good man. Sidney Cohen, and they raised two children. The family went on camping trips and bought a cottage, like other Canadians. For them, Canada offered natural beauty and healthy outdoor activities. Yet the past was never far away. Judy could not forget what had happened to her and millions of other Jews in those traumatic years and her desire for learning about the past would not diminish. Shortly after an encounter with a group of Holocaust deniers in 1993, Judy retired. And shortly after that, she visited the Holocaust Center of Toronto, wanting to help combat what she calls the emerging assault on the Holocaust 
and historical truth. This was a big undertaking and the start of a new and meaningful phase in Judy's life. Guided by her heart and the passion for the truth, she applied herself and started to read intently. The fact that her book before you includes a quasi-bibliography of her private study materials attests to the depth of Judy's quest. She wanted to understand the many unfathomable and perplexing events that lay beneath the decisions and actions of the Holocaust perpetrators, as well as the experiences of its victims. What perhaps gave even more meaning to her studies was reading about women's immense suffering and struggle to survive in the very places I also knew intimately, she says. Since her retirement, Judy has dedicated her time and energy to fulfill a commitment she made to teaching about the Holocaust. She particularly wanted to reach out to students, and she worked through her exhaustion, always accepting yet another invitation to address a class. She also participated in March of the Living four times accompanying Jewish high school and college youth to Auschwitz and then Israel as a survivor who could speak to the truth about what had happened. For Judy and many survivors, telling their story or writing it down is often a difficult and perilous task. How can they deal with the powerful memories that are etched in their hearts? Perhaps for Judy, one way has been through acquiring background knowledge, which has given her the ability to situate the individual in the larger frame of history. For example, when she writes about her three brothers who were conscripted into the Hungarian army's forced labor battalions, along with tens of thousands of other Jewish men, she weaves in the facts that she learned post-war. 50,000 Jewish forced laborers were sent to the Eastern Front into Soviet Ukraine with the Hungarian Second Army in 1942, and fewer than 10,000 would return. Her words. By inserting succinct historical political facts throughout her memoir, Judy focuses on her story within the greater historical picture. A desire to acquire knowledge, to learn, is a notable strand that winds itself through the narrative of Judy's life and one of Judy's strengths. Although she was denied access to regular high school as Hungary applied anti-Semitic laws in the 1930s and 40s and the Holocaust, which ruptured her life and scarred her forever, prevented her from even thinking of a normal education. The life trajectory that Judy shares with us from Hungary to Canada is one that highlights education. Her learning and understanding of the history that lay at the bottom of Germany's intent to annihilate Jewish life in Europe, together with her own lived experiences, ultimately turned into the ability to educate others. No two survivors' accounts are the same, even though there may be many parallels between them. Judy's book reveals the uniqueness of her decisions and character. We see her 
as a fighter, but she never paints herself as a heroine. She has been exceptionally courageous. She once told me that since her experiences in the Holocaust, she's not scared of anything. And to this day, Judy is not afraid to speak out. Those who know her are familiar with her engagement with injustices at home and abroad. She's always concerned about human rights violations or signs of genocidal tendencies. She has called out hate speech, anti-Semitic or otherwise, because she has experienced how words can turn into violent actions. She knows all too well that language matters. It has saddened and angered her, as it has many Holocaust survivors, that individuals and governments sometimes do not seem to have learned much from the history of genocide and from personal experiences with discrimination and murderous persecution. Over the years, I have admired Judy's perseverance and diligence, and I'm happy now that she has applied these admirable traits to writing her own story. Seeing her testimonial in front of me fills me with gladness that she has finally joined many other Holocaust survivors, particularly women, who have recounted their gender-specific experiences, which she so fervently sought to collect on her website. This remarkable achievement is an important part of her legacy, and the cry in unison as her final contribution reaches out to us with a story that illustrates the wide-ranging scope of the man-made catastrophe of the 20th century, one that goes beyond the self, but of which she has been a part. Before Judy takes us back to that past with her particular recollections, I think it poignant to end with a sentiment she always emphasizes to her audiences which she also emphasizes in this memoir, not to cry about my sad story, but to think about the important issues I raised. Karen Durr, Ph.D., Simone de Beauvoir Institute and Department of Modern Languages and Linguistics at Concordia University, Montreal, Canada, 2020.